Let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 20. We'll be going over the entire chapter, but for this portion, we'll read the first 11 verses together. 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 1 through 11. And if you have a pew Bible in front of you, it, you can find it on page 227. When you have found it, please rise in reverence for God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then David fled from Naioth in Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? <clears throat> and what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing either great or small without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes, and he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at table with the king, but let me go, that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked, leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice for there for all the clan. He says, good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant. For you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself. For why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, Far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then John David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come. Let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. This is the word of the Lord. You know, there's some things I decide to address and some things I don't address, um, especially when we went over chapter 18 and even 19, um, when there was a vow or a covenant made between David and Jonathan um, I was able to see some snickers, some smirks, uh, covenant between two men. What does that mean? <clears throat> and I didn't really want to placate or, you know, kind of just give in to that kind of foolish thinking. Uh, but obviously there are people who are reading this passage and they're like, ooh, David and Jonathan, is this perhaps or mayhaps the G in LGBT? And so some people actually think that, and I guess I will take some time to address that. In modern day, it may be difficult for many of us to see any other motivating force outside of what we call pleasure. Why do you do this, or why do you do that? Isn't it because it brings you pleasure AKA happiness. I was talking with Pastor Paul even the other week, asked 
asking him, how was this movie, this very popular blockbuster movie that came out from the Marvel Universe most recently? And he was like, you know what? I think the main point of this movie was about happiness. Your happiness is the highest goal, meaning your pleasure is the highest thing. What we have done now today in today's age is to equate happiness with sensual pleasure. And therefore, if happiness and sensual pleasure are the highest goods, to deny someone their sensual pleasure is to deny them their happiness. To deny someone their happiness is to deny them then their identity. So how do we get to this place here today where we are equating happiness with sensual pleasure? If you're taking my course on Wednesday nights, then you know that it has a lot to do with a lot of these thinkers that have come up in the past. And you don't have to take the course, but if you have, then you know that a lot of it also has to do with this idea that Freud developed. Sigmund Freud wrote this essay called Civilization and Its Discontents. And I'm going to read you a short excerpt from that essay. And Freud wrote this. Man's discovery that sexual or genital love afforded him the strongest experiences of satisfaction and in fact provided him with the prototype of all happiness must have suggested to him that he should continue to seek the satisfaction of happiness in his life along the path of sexual relations and that he should make genital eroticism the central point of his life. This is what Freud was writing. What is your highest good? What is the highest point of happiness one person could receive? And if that's the case, then you should go for it. You should strive for it. You should excel in it. You should never be denied this great good. Carl Truman, in his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, writes about how now art, all the forms of art, all the way to politics, sex, is now omnipresent. You can't get away from this defining, and now this ideology permeates through every school of thought and discipline. You know, this notion would have been foreign to people just one or two generations before us. But now everything is tainted with this idea of sensual pleasure being the highest good, and if it's the highest good, then it is a human right. And what has happened now, even in academia, is that we are reading history backwards with this corrupt lens. Most recently, most recently meaning this past week, LGBT activists with archaeology are advocating against identifying skeletal remains, like skeletons, as either male or female, because we will be denying them their <clears throat> identity. So even Reading backwards into archaeological remains, we can't read these skeletons as male or female or what these activists are saying. They argue that trans <clears throat> excuse me, and non-binary identities get erased when you die. This is what they're arguing. Trans and non-binary identities get erased when you die. Hmm... The more corrupt and debased a society becomes, the more it will have to, the more it must read backwards their own critical gender ideology because that is the only way 
this ideology can survive. It has to and must continue to consume and devour again and again until there's nothing left. It is truly a Romans 1 scenario that we are currently in. I would like to go over Romans 1 really quickly with you. And if you have your Bible, you can turn to it because I'll be reading a good chunk of that chapter. Romans 1 verse 18. This is what it says. Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relationship relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. When you read a passage like this, you can't help but to see this correlation with those that continue to give up even the natural revelation, even the natural revelation that God has given mankind for his benefit to make up your own reality, which is not reality at all. And so when we say things like truth, people are triggered. What do you mean by truth? Are you trying to subject me to what you think is truth and thereby oppress me and thereby deny me my identity is the kind of thinking that they go to. But even one minute of thinking through this kind of logic, you'll see that it would not carry through. It's not coherent. You can't function in society this way. But then what we have to do then is read everything in this lens that we are given, even teaching our little children these corrupt practices. 
And so when we come to a passage like today's, and the first thing that you think of, or what modern people think of, is that David and Jonathan must be lovers, know that this is the debased mind that we have been given over to, and it is the wrath of God when we lose all reason and are absent a rational mind. We lose any semblance of truth, and when we lose the truth, we lose the riches God has for us in that truth. In Proverbs 15, 6, it says, In the house of the righteous there is much treasure, but trouble befalls the income of the wicked. And what a sad state of affairs we are in when the preacher has to even address this about David and Jonathan. And so what happens when we miss the truth of a passage by inserting our own narrative, which is twisted and corrupt, what happens? We miss out on the truth, the beauty, the honorable, the just, the pure. Instead of our minds being corrupt, we see that through the Holy Spirit, through His Word, is cleansing and sanctifying our minds in Christ. This is what 1 Thessalonians 4 says. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we, have, as we told you beforehand, and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Philippians 4.8 also says this, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, Think about these things. When you think about what is true, when you think about these things, your mind becomes sanctified. And when your mind becomes sanctified, your body starts to act sanctified as well. No longer is corruptness coming out from our bodies, but rather beauty, truth, love, what is honorable, what is just, what is pure. You want to exude these things. You have to have a sanctified mind. But when your mind is corrupt, and when you let the ideology of this, ideologies of this world taint you and your thinking, because you can't help but to do that, what happens? You don't even know the point of this passage. What is the main point of this passage? It's about the covenant between David and Jonathan. We are seeing a breakdown of society because we are being given into idolatry and thereby justly deserving God's wrath. You know, <clears throat> I mourn the state of affairs that we are in when we send you off to college. I know Pastor Paul has a young one about to go to college as well, and I joke with him often, and he'll, he'll tell you, he's like, why are you sending her there, bro? <laughs> but instead of... Aristotelian or Thomist philosophy, where we learn about causation, where we learn about how we can't have, you know, um, just 
you know, the theory of non-contradiction, the law of non-contradiction. We, we don't learn things like that anymore. What we learn are things like critical theory and so forth. But Thomas Aquinas, where Thomism comes from, but Thomas Aquinas said that there are mainly four idols that humans give themselves into. Thomas Aquinas would say there are four substitutes that humans have for God. And those four are money, power, pleasure, and honor. Money, power, pleasure, and honor. And by honor, he means something like fame, like legacy. And now we have taken these four, money, power, pleasure, and honor, put it under pleasure, but it's mainly these four, and we're trying to fill the void in our lives with these, these four things. We hold these four things in esteem over God. And we think that if we try to fill the void in our lives with money, pleasure, uh, power, and honor, that we will be satisfied rather than the things that God is teaching us. And if I were to counter these idols that God teaches us, it would be these four things, which won't go, we won't go over in detail today, but maybe someday. Four things that will glorify God are the four F's that I would call the four F's. That's faith, family, friendship, and function. Function meaning how you function in the body of Christ, like in 1 Corinthians 12. You really want to know your purpose in life. You really want to fight the spiritual depression that's attacking you. You really want to find your purpose, your ethos, your telos. Then figure out faith, family, friendship, and function as you figure out the will of God. And today is about one of those F's. It's about friendship. When we give into idols, when we give into these idols and this ideology, we lose even a semblance of what true friendship is. You know, I did joke in the past about who your best man is, right? Who's your best man? Who's your maid of honor in your wedding? Who are they? How much do they really know you? Is it someone that you just grew up with? Someone that you just get along with, have fun with? Someone you just have a history with? You know, that's a shallow idea of friendship. But today, how fortunate for us, we have come across a passage that goes over this idea of friendship in detail. And this whole section is covered under this idea of covenant. That's something that we do here in CGS, by the way. When you become a member of this church, you covenant with the other members of the body. We literally have a covenant that we read, that we promise each other every time we gather as members. Covenanting with the body of believers is incredibly important. And the Bible exhorts us to do things like this. The Bible shows us that we need things like this, and we'll continue to see why. You know, among the elders, I constantly remind the elders, hey, we have to really like each other, not just, you know, quote unquote, love each other, but really like each other. Like we got to really like hanging out so much. So this is what I told the elders that people might be like, hey, aren't they a little too close? Aren't they a little too close? 
I want the elders to show what covenant is. It's to bind yourself to the other person. It's just start by teaching. The elders should start by teaching, by showing what covenant is. We covenant with each other when we become members of the body. And it's so important that we understand what this is because without it, we don't even know what friendship is. And friendship is tainted by whatever it is. I need friends to, you know. I don't know, to add to my list of followers on social media, some garbage like that. And so let's look at this idea of covenant. First of all, how is covenant used here in 1 Samuel 20? And the word covenant is used multiple times in the passage, in the entire chapter. And the whole idea... The whole passage is about this idea of covenant between David and Jonathan. And while the word for covenant is used over and over, next to the word covenant, there's another Hebrew word that's used over and over alongside this word for covenant. And we'll see it first in verse 8. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself. For why should you bring me to your father? Now in verse 8, that word, the words deal kindly. There is no word for therefore in the Hebrew. It's just, you know, it's a connection. It's a conjunction that these verses are doing so we could read it better. But in the Hebrew, it's just deal kindly. That's how verse 8 starts. Deal kindly is translated from one word in the Hebrew. And that one word is a word that many of us may be familiar with. That word is chesed. And the word chesed is almost always translated as steadfast love. This one word in the Hebrew language is translated in two words, but it's almost always translated as steadfast love. But here, because it's a verb and it's a command, it's translated as deal kindly, but the word is hesed. And it's used here as David reminding Jonathan of their covenant together. As David reminds Jonathan, we have a covenant together, deal kindly, mean have hesed, have this steadfast love for me. David is on the run from Saul. Saul is trying to kill him. We know this because of the narrative that we have read in the previous chapters. In verse 1, David then tells Jonathan that Saul is seeking his life. Why is he doing so? David wants to know, why is your father trying to kill me? Because maybe if I knew, I could address it. And that's why he goes to Jonathan, Saul's son. Who else would know why Saul is trying to kill David? And Saul, uh, Jonathan happens to be Saul's closest advisors. He's one of the closest advisors to the king. And Jonathan is unconvinced, though, however, that his father is seeking the life of David. After all, if he was trying to kill David, Jonathan figures, wouldn't he tell me, his closest confidant, right? Any plot to kill David, how could he keep it from me? And David continues to listen to this, and as he's listening, he starts to implore Jonathan to take what he is saying. I get that you think that there's no way your father is trying to kill me, but I really believe this to be true. And how does he implore Jonathan to take what he is saying seriously? He's using an, by using an imperative statement to deal chesed with him. 
deal kindly is to deal with steadfast love. Why would David go to the son of the king who was trying to kill him? Because he had a covenant with him. He invokes that covenant when he tells him to deal kindly with him. By saying, deal hesed to me, he's invoking that covenant. And that is the first point. I have three points or three characteristics of the covenant exercise. And that's the first point of the covenant exercise. And that is dependability. Dependability. In certain times and in dangerous times, you can depend on your covenant partner. That imperative statement means that David expects Jonathan to act with chesed toward him because of the covenant, even though John, uh, David is the lesser. He is the more needy partner. They are not equal partners in this covenant. He refers to himself as your servant three times in verses 7 to 8. Your servant, your servant, your servant. He is acknowledging, I am the lesser in this relationship, but because we have a covenant, I am invoking that covenant. What we recognize then is that David can expect hesed because hesed and covenant are counterparts of each other in this passage, meaning you cannot have one without the other. Hesed is not just any kind of love, as one commentator put it. Hesed is not merely love, but loyal love. Not merely kindness, but dependable kindness. Not merely affection, but affection that has committed itself. And Jonathan can be depended on because this covenant isn't just any covenant. It is in the covenant of Yahweh, the covenant of the Lord. And in that foundation, a love that is founded upon Yahweh can be depended on no matter what the situation. You hear that? If it is a covenant of Yahweh, you can depend on it no matter what the situation. And here in the text, we are seeing something here. The entire world, the entire kingdom can be against you. There can be confusion and turmoil that surrounds you. What you can do, however, is take yourself to the person that has made a covenant with you. This is a grace that the Lord gives his people. Where there is a covenant, you can expect Chesed. And what an incredible relief it is to know this. You can depend on a covenant with someone that you have made in the Lord because it is from the Lord Chesed flows. It's God when making covenant, when making a covenant with his people, told them in Exodus 34 6. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in hesed and faithfulness. It's to Yahweh Nehemiah appealed, asking for hesed when he prayed in Nehemiah chapter 1, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, hesed, with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant. What we are seeing in the Bible is that it's 
to God's people, God pours out his steadfast love when we make a covenant with the Lord or we make a covenant in the Lord as well. And because we are making a covenant from the Lord, we are given this hesed to give others we covenant with. Your covenant partner is dependable, not because of who he is, but because of Yahweh who forges that covenant. And that's the first point. The covenant exercised is dependable. The second point we see from verses 12 to 17. A covenant exercised is faithful. Honestly, if you took out verses 12 to 17 from this passage, I don't think anybody would notice. You wouldn't skip a beat because you could just go right from verse 11 to 18 and it would just be as smooth. However, verses 12 to 17, I believe, is placed here for our benefit. And this is what Jonathan says in verse 12. The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness when I have sounded on my father about this time tomorrow or the third day. Behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan. And more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. And this is what I mean by faithful. You don't need faith when you see something. I don't need faith when this stand is standing right in front of me. In the same manner, the faithfulness Jonathan is showing us here is when it isn't seen when it's costing him, and it's costing him everything. You don't make a deal with a rival. You don't promise someone benefits when it will potentially cost you your kingdom, all the riches, the wealth, the status that you have. If Jonathan would keep this covenant, it would cost him everything. And if he keeps with covenant with David, meaning if his father really is trying to kill David, then Jonathan, if, instead of protecting his own family's interests, is what, what it's really saying is protecting David's. See, that doesn't make any sense politically. It doesn't make any sense financially, and you, the list can go on. Jonathan knows what keeping this covenant could potentially cost him, so he continues on in verses 14 to 16. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die, and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. Jonathan would remain faithful to the covenant he made, even if it would cost him politically, his power, his wealth, his prestige. And being faithful in a covenant means to keep up that covenant, even though it would cost you. In marriage, there is a covenant promise that a husband and wife say to one another in sickness and in health. The reason why I wasn't able to make it was because my wife and the baby was sick for a week. And thankfully, I was the only one without sickness. Uh, but unfortunately, that means I had to do all the night feedings, day feedings, wife feedings, and so on, right? And so <clears throat> I would tell my wife later, 
I had never taken so much Tylenol in my life just to keep up. But it's not so much the physical stress, but I, you know, what I'm experiencing is what you all know is not being able to sleep. That's a nice a new challenge, not sleeping at all. But those that have made similar covenants know this. You don't give up. You don't walk away. You stay until your own body would break down. That's what a covenant is. That's what it means to stay faithful. Just staying married when it's good doesn't make you a faithful spouse. It's through poorer. It's through sickness. It's for worse. And that's what the covenant exercise shows us. Faithfulness. And the third thing that we see, a covenant exercise, the characteristic that we see is selflessness. Selflessness. This is in a similar vein as a covenant being faithful, but it's where we now see Jonathan sitting at the table in front of his father at the feast. Everyone is there. Names are given. It's a big list, right? Name dropping happens. Everyone except one person, and that's David. David's seat and David's place is empty. The language, however, used by Jonathan to explain this is quite notable. When Saul asks, and Saul finally asks, where is David? He asks about David's whereabouts. He answers, Jonathan answers in a way that doesn't put David down and by doing so, in contrast, lifting himself up. The contrast also that we see here is that there is this new moon festival, but Jonathan adds this detail that David would rather go back to his humble family to make sacrifices with them. This is what is written in verse 28. Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Not this regal festival that Saul is throwing, but a humble, a familial sacrifice in a small town called Bethlehem. He's making almost David look good here. I mean, if you're going to put on a convincing show, Jonathan, at least throw David under the bus. He's the one that's giving you a hard time with your father. But Jonathan doesn't do that here. And not only did he not tell Saul, but Jonathan's saying David would rather confide in Jonathan, showing Saul what? By adding these details, details, what is Jonathan showing Saul? Jonathan is showing Saul that Jonathan is the stupid one. He doesn't deride even his father in his explanation. The way he puts it, and that's why I think what he said is quite notable, Jonathan puts himself down. He doesn't put David down. He doesn't put Saul down, even though these two are against each other. Imagine you were in this scenario. And let's say your parent is like, where is this guy? And then your parent wants to kill him. I don't know, if, whatever the case is. Wouldn't you at least drag one of them down? You know, why would you put yourself down? But that's exactly what Jonathan does. Jonathan doesn't put Saul down. He doesn't put David down. But he puts himself down. Jonathan is the stupid one here. He's the one given into this friendship. And this is why Saul's anger is kindled. And he calls Jonathan a son of a perverse and rebellious woman. By doing this, Saul is not cursing his wife or Jonathan's mother. 
This is probably the equivalent of calling Jonathan a bastard. And he lectures now to Jonathan that as long as David is alive, he says this, neither you or your kingdom will be secured. He's saying, you idiot, don't you know that you're the one losing out in this relationship? That's essentially what Saul is saying. He's not wrong. It is technically a zero-sum game. There can only be one king. So if David is king, guess who's not king? Saul just couldn't fathom how his son could be so dense and dim-witted. How could he place himself and his kingdom in jeopardy to save a lowly servant named David? But here's what Jonathan knew. In chapter 19, Jonathan knew that David was, was God's servant. He tells Saul that the Lord worked a great salvation in Israel through David. And there was the Spirit of God. It was clear from even chapter 16 that the Spirit of God had departed from Saul but that spirit of God rested in David. And thirdly, Jonathan had the faith to understand that this wasn't Saul's kingdom, but rather the kingdom of God. To Saul and the rest of the world, Jonathan may have seemed like a dim-witted and slow person, but Jonathan in reality was a man of faith. And instead of playing political games, he was reflecting God's faithfulness in his covenant relationship. And in that sense, Jonathan lived a free and liberating life, while Saul would live under constant threat and anxiety. Whether the threat was reality or fiction, it mattered not. Saul lived under constant anxiety and threat. And therein lies the rub. We are made to think that this life, that we're living now, that this life is about achieving goals, accomplishing milestones, realizing material gain, enacting your will. But what if it's not? What if in this case the road less traveled, while more costly, is truly liberating? Dale Ralph Davis wrote this, Life does not consist in achieving your goals, but in fulfilling your promises. I'll read that one more time. Life does not consist in achieving your goals, but fulfilling your promises. I'll let you munch on that for a little while. Because as a believer, what if your goal isn't to do it your way, or to make your mark, or to even to get ahead? What, it's about, what if it's about covenant and understanding what a covenant is? Ultimately, ultimately, we see that the covenant exercised to us is shown to us ultimately by Christ. The promise that he made all the way back, God made in Genesis when he went through the carcasses that Abraham prepared in Genesis 15 by himself. He went through it with a smoking pot and a flaming torch. God keeps that covenant. Christ would come. He would condescend. He would empty himself. He would suffer loss. He counted them as rubbish, in a sense, as he went to the cross, all so that he could show us the true kingdom. Indeed, it was Jesus Christ who lived out for us. Matthew 6.33, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, 
and all these things shall be added unto you. So what does the covenant exercise lead to? Now that we know the characteristics, what does the covenant exercise lead to? We have learned that the covenant exercise is dependable, faithful, and selfless. But where does that lead to? Where does the covenant exercise lead to? And that's where in the last section of the passage, Jonathan and David come up with a way to transfer information to one another without alerting others of their way of communication. Jonathan will shoot some arrows into the field, and if David is in no danger, he'll say to the servant who's fetching the arrows, look, the arrows are right next to you. But if David is in danger for his life, Jonathan will say, look, the arrows are beyond you. And so in this final section of the chapter, Jonathan shoots the arrows and then proceeds to instruct his servant, isn't the arrows beyond you? And there David has his answer. Jonathan would even add, if you see in this passage, hurry, be quick, do not stay for good and safe measure. What we see next is marked by David. It's gratitude and grief. He bows three times to the ground. What does the covenant exercised lead to? And in this chapter, Jonathan here has the last word. It's go in peace. This might seem implausible because of the current situation David in is, is in. Because after all, isn't Saul still trying to kill David? And now he's brought Jonathan into this muck. Now also Jonathan is facing this danger. But the peace exclaimed is in peace everywhere. It's the reference of peace because of the oath between the two of them in the name of the Lord and Jonathan adds, between my offspring and your offspring forever. You know, novels and movies, they try to depict this. But it's true that even in the most tempestuous storms, there is an eye in the hurricane that the storms swirl around. And if you pass through the eye, you will notice that in the eye of the hurricane, there is a sudden calm. And as people have experienced and ex, uh, explained, it's like this eerie calm that's almost spiritual. The reason why there is beautiful weather inside the eye of a hurricane is due to the simple fact that air is rising to the top everywhere else in the storm, but in the eye, it's actually sinking, bringing in warm air. And thus, why so many eyewitness accounts say or report seeing that they even see beautiful skies in the eye of a hurricane. And I think that's pretty much an accurate sketch of the biblical idea of peace right now that we have been afforded through covenant. It isn't general tranquility, but it's a righteousness right in the center of considerable turmoil. Jesus said this in John chapter 16, verse 33. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So the people of God don't have peace because the, the surroundings are necessarily peaceful. They have peace because someone greater than Jonathan has made a covenant with them. Jesus takes this cup, this drink, and he says, this cup 
is the new covenant sealed in my blood. This is the covenant that we have been afforded in Jesus Christ. Those that believe in Jesus Christ, those that place their faith in him, that's when the perishable starts to put on the imperishable, like it says in 1 Corinthians 15. This mortal body starts to put on the immortal. The perishable puts on the imperishable. And everything shall come to pass, saying, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The picture that we see here is that we are afforded this grace. While we are here in this world, there will be trouble and tribulation, but God gives us his covenant. And not only does God give us covenant, he gives us this grace to covenant with one another, teaching us what covenant it is, that we become a witness to the world what covenant truly is. And this eye starts to grow eventually until everything else is swallowed up. There is no more storm. There is no more turmoil. There is no more death because the eye will swallow up everything else. It is God who gives us the victory ultimately through Jesus Christ. When you understand this, how can you now ask, how can we have covenant with one another? Because when we understand this, we understand we can follow through with our covenants with one another in Christ because it is Christ who has swallowed up death and victory. It is Christ who showed us this way first. It is Christ who promises us that he will be with us to the end of the age. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so this covenant is given to us in Jesus Christ that we can have confidence that no matter what storm may pass, that there is peace in Christ. And we also, in the body of Christ, can afford this covenant with one another. Why is it so important that we covenant with one another? It's because we show the world the grace that God has given us in this gift of covenant. This is something that we have been given through the chesed that God shows us and has given us. And we get to exercise the covenant ourselves. This is is a glorious gift that we have been given. So to understand this passage is to understand the covenant exercised is truly a gift of God. I hope we truly understand this as we covenant with one another in Christ, understanding that God is the first one to covenant with us, showing us his steadfast love. And because he has poured out his steadfast love, we can now show it to one another. What a beautiful picture of family a friendship, a function, a faith that God shows us in his word. Praise be to God, and all glory be to him alone. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the peace that you have afforded us in your son, Jesus Christ. We want to recognize our gratitude through our worship to you in song, with our bodies in service, and with our devotion to one another. God, help us to understand day by day what it truly means to love one another, not in the ways of the world that the ideologies of the world will try to convince us of, but truly what chesed is when we hold it for one another because you have shown us what true steadfast love is. 
Let's take this time to pray. And perhaps we have been convinced of the ways of the world. Perhaps we have been confused. Perhaps we have been deceived. Take this time then to offer up to God a confession of sin and repentance so that you can turn away from these things that will lead us rather into sexual immorality, things that will lead us into death rather than life, and turn to God who shows us His steadfast love that we may truly live out a covenant life with Him and with one another. Let's pray.